welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Matt Carpenter on February 26th. who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they shall revile you and persecute you and swear all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its flavor... How shall it be seasoned? It is good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for make, making us like your son, for sending him to die and rise again for our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. We look to you now in faith and ask that you would stir our hearts. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock. And our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. 247 years ago, Thomas Jefferson penned the following words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Since that time, our confidence in our rights has only grown, especially the right to pursue happiness. That's usually defined now as, I can do whatever I want unless it hurts somebody else. A brief look at the news will explain, it will prove that this pursuit of happiness has not led us down good paths. In these Beatitudes, Jesus presents a different vision of happiness. One that does not seek first its own good, but rather to first honor God and give to others. After speaking of mourning, meekness, humility, and so on, Jesus comes to that most difficult of all the Beatitudes, facing persecution for righteousness. The word persecute actually derives from two Latin words. Uh, one means to pursue or follow, and the other means to press forward or press 
down. So persecution is when you are pursued or oppressed, in this instance, because of submission and obedience to Christ. When we think of persecution in the 20th century, we think most often of the worst cases, the cases of political persecution, uh, being thrown in prison, being tortured, and so on. But persecution can be small. And the instance Jesus gives is those who are reviled. In other words, when people gossip about you, when, when people say things that are false to tear down your reputation, to prevent you from certain benefits, when they, when they say things that damage you, that is the, the, the specific persecution he mentions. And of course we know that it extends to political persecution. But persecution for righteousness is one of the highest honors we can receive. For facing it with submission demonstrates loyalty to God just as our fathers, the prophets, demonstrated loyalty to God. Pursuing the beatific life, that is, walking in these various, these various attributes that Jesus gave in verses 3 through 12, does not keep you from persecution. We, we have to guard ourselves here because we think sometimes that you can summarize the Beatitudes by saying, blessed are the nice and inoffensive because they escape any problems. Everybody likes a nice person, right? You know, something that has the backbone of, 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 a, of a banana. You can just kind of meld it, move it wherever you want, you know, bend it, and you know, no resistance ever. Well, that's what some think. But then on the other, on the other end, blessed are those who are obnoxious to everyone in the name of Christ. Right? You can guarantee persecution will come. If you tell people off and you use Bible verses and they don't receive it and, and they don't receive it with a good attitude, you've got to be doing it right because you're going to get backlash. No. It's a line. It's a fine line sometimes. We have two ditches. These, the, this is the path to virtue Jesus has given here, just like the other previous pagan philosophers, they would lay out a path to virtue, and they would all say, you have your one side of virtue, you have vices on this side and vices on this side, and you're called to walk the narrow path. So whatever your flesh tends toward, Beware, that's not the right way. When you are walking in the beatific life, though, again, it will not keep you from persecution. It actually, it actually exposes you to persecution. When you honor God with humility and sincerity, it will upset the people 
and organizations around you. And this is part of our spiritual warfare. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. We want to wrestle against flesh and blood. That's a lot easier than wrestling against principalities and powers. The principalities and powers are invisible. But I can see that guy that just got me fired. I can, I can hear him. I can put a face to that. And I can think horrid things about that face. I can say horrid things about that person. And sometimes it's not just those people out there in the world. Jesus faced his greatest persecution from those within the covenant. So we should not think that it's going to be drastically different. So not only is it not against flesh and blood, we have to be careful. Our battle is not against the people who are closest to us because sometimes persecution comes from people who are around us. Jesus said to his, to his followers that some of you are going to face tremendous trials from those in your own household. The principalities and powers are trying to lure you into lashing out. And it's at those times especially when you are tempted to say something to really snap that person in place, to let them know you're not going to be pushed around, you're not going to be talked to. Now, look, I'm not, I'm not telling you that you just receive verbal abuse and, and you smile. and you, No, that, 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 that's not the point. But you do not, in turn, re respond with evil for evil. It's at these times especially when we must not seek personal vindication. Satan's goal is to fix your eyes on men and what they are doing to you. So don't fall for his trap. Now does this mean that Christians should not use the legal system when pursuing vindication? Well, of course we can and we should. This is Paul's point in Romans chapter 13 when he said in chapter Romans 12 at the end that you should not return evil for evil. He's echoing what Jesus will say later on in Matthew 5 and we'll look at this in time. He is not, he, Paul is not saying you, you can't use the means at your disposal for your protection. That's why we have chap, chapter 13. Chapter, Romans 13 was not written as you know, primarily for a get-out-from-under-authority card. That, that was not the point. The point is, Paul is saying, even in the worst governments, you have a means of seeking protection. And the apostle himself is the example of using the legal system to his advantage. Not in a bad way. Paul very likely had an audience with the emperor himself because of the Roman legal system. But you know what he did? In one case, he let himself be beaten and then told the centurion, oh, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. He could have said that at the beginning. Could have saved himself a lot of stripes, but he didn't. He understood 
how to be wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. It was not that he didn't think of it in time. Oh, man, if I'd have just remembered before these 39 lashes hit me what, that I was a Roman citizen. No, it was purposeful. So we have the same opportunity. We're called to be wise in that way. We use the means that God has given us for protection, but we do not enact protection on our own and lash out and try to take the other person or group down ourselves. So on one hand, we, we must keep our, understand we will face this, but also we must beware of the martyr syndrome. Wishing to be the public hero, to go down in glory. The Beatitudes are not a path to human glory. They are a path to be like Christ. And sometimes those two don't go together. Yes, we admire those who have gone before us, missionaries who are faithful. There are examples, many examples we can find of those people, but I'm going to tell you something. There are thousands and thousands of Christians that we will never know who died persecuted in one way or another for their faith, and we do not know them right now. And that's okay. We will. We will. They're the, path, the Beatitudes are the path to maturity, to virtue. They call us to pursue human flourishing through humility, through sensitivity to sin, through meekness, desiring justice and righteousness, mercy, purity of heart, peacemaking, and submitting to persecution for righteousness' sake, for Christ Himself's sake. So does a tender-hearted man or woman run the risk of being mistreated? Yes. The greatest prophets faced tribulation, and many died ignominiously. So Jesus says here, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. So you think you're glad? Be more glad. Because your reward in heaven is great. So this does mean you may not see everything you want here. That's all right. These words are echoed in James chapter 1. I was really grateful for how the Scripture readings this morning actually tied in to things from, that we'll talk about. In James chapter 1, just before what we heard read, he says, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, because the testing of your faith produces patience, and let patience have its perfect, its maturing, its completing work. Just like what Jesus will say at the end of Matthew 5, be therefore perfect, be complete as your Father in heaven is complete. It's amazing how much James echoes the words of Jesus in Matthew 5. Or Paul, he'll say, give thanks in all things. Your enemy can do nothing when you rejoice in the face of persecution. 
Do you know sometimes how you get exasperated when, when you're trying to do something and no matter how much you're trying, you try seven different ways to, and you just finally get frustrated and throw your hands up? If you want to do that to the enemy of your souls, rejoice in the face of trials. You will disgust him. That's a good thing. But then Jesus changes. He transitions after talking about persecution to two metaphors. And these two metaphors are actually one metaphor in two parts. First, he calls his disciples the salt of the earth. This has a long history. In the Old Testament, salt is a blessing. It is a part of the covenant of peace in Numbers chapter 18, verse 19. It was applied to the sacrifices, to the Old Testament sacrifices, as a savory meal to God. We see that in Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13. Jesus said in Mark 9, verse 50, Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltness, wherewith shall you have to season it? That's repeating Matthew chapter 5. But then he says this, which is not found in Matthew 5, have salt in yourselves and peace with one another. The Apostle Paul will say, let your words be always with grace, seasoned with salt. So just like salt is added to the sacrifice, we, the saints represent the peace achieved by Christ in the world. We demonstrate peace through our actions, the things that we do as we are pursuing these Beatitudes. We can't divorce all that Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3 through 12 from verse 13. He did not say, End of topic, next topic. It's all together. Everything you said about persecution especially is where the salt comes in. If we refuse to pursue flourishing God's way, and remember, flourishing is, is the best, probably, best word we have to explain those words blessed we see blessed. So if we refuse to pursue flourishing God's way, that is if we pursue our own purposes, or even if we pursue God's purposes our ways, in our ways, our preferred means, we cease being instruments of God's peace. And we become like the world. You say, but I'm a Christian. Yes, therefore act like it. How do you act like it? You pursue the Lord's work in the Lord's ways. You say, but it, that takes a lot of time and I don't see results. You don't know that. You're planting seed. When we become like the world, we are going from being salt to being sand. Something that's only worth throwing, you know, th throwing it out of your window and throwing it on the ground and letting people walk on it. And like sand, when we follow 
our, our own ways or God's ways by our means, we will be trodden underfoot by men. It is totally the opposite of what we would expect. We think, if I don't stick up for myself my way, I'm going to get walked on. Jesus says, if, I, if you try to do things your way, you'll be walked on. So the contrast is clear. Live humbly and justly before God and men, even in the face of persecution, and you will stand out. Impose your plans or even God's plans by fleshly means and you will fall under the dominion of men. If you say to yourself, this is crazy, you're probably saying the same thing the people who were hearing Jesus were thinking or were saying. So then Jesus continues with that same picture after talking about salt. He says, he says that his followers are the light of the world. Light is a recurring theme in Scripture. From the initial command of Yahweh, let there be light in Genesis 1, to John's Gospel where we read, the light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Here we're told that the Logos does not just, in, in John, we're told the Logos does not just enter the world as the light. He makes us partakers of His light. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Well, He is the light who came into the world, so how can we be the light of the world? It's by the fact that we're made partakers of Him. And this was, this was always our destiny. This was, this was the purpose for God's people ever since the beginning. We, we heard this morning the prophecy to Abraham that his descendants would be, quote, as the stars. And sometimes we think, well, there just wasn't an abundance of material back then. So it was either the sand, which he already talked about, or the stars, and that's it. no. There was an abundance of plenty of stuff back then. There was a lot of things he could have talked about besides. Well, what are stars? They, they saw stars are the lights of heaven. Stars were something equivalent for them to, they would see it even as the gods of the ancient pantheon. So the prophecy to Abraham is your descendants will be as great as those shining ones. Now, I'm not saying we'll be gods. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying our destiny is something that surpasses the angels themselves. Daniel will pick up on this in Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. It says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Jesus will speak of this again in Matthew 13, verse 43, when He said, Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. And it all comes together in the book of Revelation when the light, when the Lamb 
is the light. And they don't have a need for the sun anymore because the Lamb shines. He is the eternal light. And we join Him. So this is not merely a, a beautiful picture. You're the light of the world. Now go be happy about the fact that you're this, this man. No, no, this is who you will be. You can't see it now, but it's coming. Praise God it's coming. But it's interesting then how Jesus narrows the scope of light in these phrases. He begins, you are the light of the world. And then he gets smaller. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And then neither does a man light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick that it may give light to all that are in the house. And then finally, let your light, the individual, shine. We begin by shining individually. But it is only by shining together that we manifest the glory of the Lord before the world, before our cities, and even our household. So what do you do in order to shine as a light? Because the place it begins, according to Jesus, is in your home. Well, pursue meekness, mercy, justice, Purity of heart before others. Exercise your authority with gracious love and justice. Obey kids. What are you called to do in your house? Honor your parents. When you feel like hitting one of your brothers or sisters, don't do that. Because that's not what Jesus wants you to do. When you want to say something that will really make this other person feel really bad and they'll never speak to you harshly again. That's not what Jesus wants. That's not your calling. <coughs> Sacrifice what you want in your home for the good of the other person. And then serve your community. Stand for causes that are just. Show mercy to those in need. Forgive the other person who doesn't deserve it. So, so this flows. And, and, and as it fills our homes, then it flows out from our homes into our community. But don't think, I'm going to go out there and shine when you're not shining where you are. It's not how it works. It begins individually and expands from there. And even if you say, I can't do this because nobody else in my house is living like this. This is where you start. Start with yourself. And pray. And it even goes to other places. I mean, the light of the world, there is a call to have a vision outside your home, outside even your local community. Be open to whatever God may do with you. Have you ever said, I I'll do anything for God but that? <coughs> Not that. I won't go there. Those are some really... Talk to the people who have said stuff like that. 
There was a conversation in my house once, years ago, and the phrase, of course, we would never go to Idaho, came up. And I was confident, the person was confident who said that. <laughs> you never know what the Lord may do. But that's okay. He's got you. He's not going to send you where he doesn't intend. The most famous English sermon from Matthew 5, 16 was given by a man named John Winthrop to a group of Puritans who were about to leave for the Massachusetts Bay Colony. That sermon was known as a model of Christian charity. It's been cited by numerous American politicians, <clears throat> mostly for the phrase, a shining city on a hill. They like that phrase because you can take that phrase and you can usually shoehorn it into whatever great political cause you are espousing at the time. But there was much more to it than just that phrase. Because in this sermon, Winthrop expounds what it means for people to live together in submission to God and service to one another, whether they're rich or poor, strong or weak. And after warning of the consequences of failing to walk in love towards one another, he says this, quote, We must uphold a familiar commerce together in all meekness, gentleness, patience, and liberality. We must delight in each other, make others' conditions our own, rejoice together, mourn together, labor and suffer together, always having before our eyes our commission and community in the work as members of the same body. So shall we keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Lord will be our God and delight to dwell among us as His own people and will command a blessing upon us in all our ways. Skipping a bit, he goes on to say, When He shall make us a praise and glory, that men shall say of the succeeding plantations, May the Lord make it like that of New England. End quote. And then he goes on to say, this is how we are a city on a hill. We manifest the city of God, not by asserting our rights, but by submitting our rights to God and serving others, serving our neighbors. And though we have largely forgotten Winthrop's vision of communal life together, the opportunity remains. It is only through pursuing, flourishing God's way that we become what our forefathers so dearly wanted. This demands that we set aside the modern vision of rights and happiness and exchange it for God's eternal path to both temporal and everlasting joy. Only through mourning over sin seeking justice and mercy, striving for purity of heart, and even seeking peace in the midst of persecution, can we hope to make the land favorable and fulfill our calling to shine as God's anointed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your promises. Thank you for this gift of being declared your light. And may we walk according to the light of Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.
Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.